Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast for when you want your faith in the game to be restored. I'm your host, Benny, and this week I was joined by fellow cricket history aficionado Abhishek Chopra. We had a fascinating conversation about a test series from close to a hundred years ago, the famous Bodyline series featuring Don Bradman's Australia and Douglas Jardine's England, a blockbuster contest that shook up the cricket world, strained relations between two countries, and inspired countless books as well as a miniseries starring Hugo Weaving of the Matrix fame. Now, even if you believe that you know a lot about this controversial series, trust me, you'll be fascinated by some of the incidents that happened in and around the store. Incidents which have not stayed in public memory as much as the hostile tactics by the English bowlers to the finest batsmen in the history of the game. Now, fair warning, this is a long but absorbing conversation Hope you enjoy it. So Abhishek, thank you so much for coming on The Last Wicket. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a nice Saturday morning where I'm at and uh, can't think of a better way to spend it than to talk about cricket. (laughs) So let's start with just, you know, the topic that, you know, we're going to be discussing today, you know, the Bodyline series, and I'm sure there might be a few listeners out there who may not know about the Bodyline series or they don't know enough about it. So in a nutshell, can you just tell for our, can you just tell our listeners what is the Bodyline series and what got you interested in it? Um, okay, so essentially uh, we know that England and Australia play each other home away uh, at regular intervals uh, for uh, something they call the Ashes which is essentially uh, the, uh, the ashes of uh, the pyre of uh, English cricket when that happened many, many years ago. So they compete uh, with each other for the ashes every now and then. And uh, this, this edition down under is going to start soon. Uh, so obviously, I mean, 
uh, every time England and Australia play each other, we have had several marquee series. Like the most recent one, perhaps in memory, is 2005 Ashes, which uh, right. you know took both countries by storm. Uh, and then if we go back, there was one series in which both him, you know, made his uh, made it his own. And then eighty one, right? Eighty one, yeah. And then there were so many others, right? And so one of them is the Bodyline series, England, uh, Australia versus England, Australia uh, at home, which happened in 1932-33. And essentially, this is called Bodyline because the English came with a very clear plan of uh, bowling at the line which corresponded to the body of the batsman. And uh, it wasn't something that was there in the lexicon of cricket earlier, uh, but it was what was happening on the ground and uh, the enterprise of a few journalists, which gave us this term. Uh, and it's something that has left a mark on uh, world cricket in, in a very indelible way. Uh, even now, when there is short pitch bowling and someone gets hurt, we have concussion rules now, uh, concussion substitutes and, you know, helmets and all of that sort of stuff. And we have had a few unfortunate incidents of that nature too. But whenever something like this comes up, you do end up going back to Bodyline as a reference, uh, you know, to understand how it all began. Uh, which is which is essentially a little bit of uh, you know an irony in itself, because bodyline is not where bodyline began, so to speak. Uh, right. While the term may have come into existence then, uh, it was something that was being practiced in different ways, forms earlier too, but never at such a stage, never with the kind of protagonist that we had, uh, you know, in 1932-33. Uh, and to answer the second part of your question, how did I sort of get interested in this? I don't know if you know, but uh, 1984 was when a TV series came out, uh, which was uh, produced uh, perhaps for the two cricket-loving nations of England and Australia, which was to basically uh, you know, give, give viewers, modern viewers, a glimpse of the Bodyline series. Uh, it was very, very badly <laughs> very, very badly made. And uh, I mean, the cricketers who played in the actual Bodyline series have gone on record to absolutely pan it. Uh, Hugo Weaving, the guy who's there in the Matrix, played uh, Jardine, Douglas Jardine, who was the English captain. Uh, and very interestingly, the guy who plays Nawab of Patodi Sr., who was an English player, uh, has also played a role in one of the many editions of Mahabharat that have been there in India. And I, I found that connection very poetic because Bodyline okay. is, uh, you know, a sort of a cricket epic. If you can right, say. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I saw that and I, I struggled to dissociate myself from the memory of that series because it was done so badly. And, and I mean, I discovered later how badly it was done. And uh, truth is, as I said, always stranger than fiction. Uh, and then, I mean, once you start to read about cricket, uh, you know, as, as most of us in India end up doing uh, when we are in middle school, etc., 
you end up learning about the fact that you know almost all the other countries play for some sort of cup or trophy or shield or something but these two decide to play for an urn and yeah. once you know that uh, arouses your curiosity you go deeper and you learn about some of the famous series that they've had and bodyline is 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 not far away from there so that's perhaps you know my journey uh, with respect to my interest in the bodyline series you know you you're mentioning about how poorly the the series was made and i think we can make an entirely different episode just about how cricket has been depicted in movies and yeah. tv shows yeah around That's the world be it england or india or australia for that matter um but anyway so i'm not surprised about the quality of it and you know i didn't I'm, i didn't even hear about this tv series before but now i'm very curious i'm going to like you know go through youtube and it's there see, get some clips from there and see how it was done um yeah. now i i'm very curious though because you know we you you, you mentioned it you know this this happened in 1932 33 season so we're looking at what 90 years ago uh, and we are still i would say hardcore cricket fans we know or have heard about this um so there's a reason why it's still kind of embedded in our heads you know why we still remember the term bodyline and the names like bradman jardine but for the benefit of again for the benefit of those who may not be very familiar who are the central characters in this series who are the main people that we're going to be talking about in over the next you know half an hour or one hour um okay so so i mean it's it's a coin toss as to who should i mention first uh, bradman or larwood uh, we'll just go with bradman cuz he was uh, you know the reason why bodyline came into being so bradman right. uh, you have to go back to imagine or, or to understand what sachin was to india in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, you know everything that perhaps could go wrong with the country was sort of going wrong Uh, or or a lot of a lot of it was going wrong and sachin was like this one shining crown jewel in the country who was sort of giving us hope and uh, you know we were basking in his glory and we were sharing his success uh, and you know as as sangakara says to shan parlak the weight of expectations of uh, you know an entire country on his shoulders etc and bradman was very similar right. in australia back then because i mean I, i'm not great at economics myself but probably the 20s 30s were not great uh, times for anyone in the world australia was also not doing so well economically and suddenly you know this this young prodigy comes up and is just like scoring runs left right and center i remember as a school kid i won a book as a prize which was essentially you know a question and then a long answer um and they had separate sections uh, so there was the animal kingdom the plant kingdom and you know uh, uh, economics and this and, and there was a section on sports and the first question in that uh, uh, in that uh, section was was donald bradman a run machine and uh, you know he he just scored runs everywhere and uh, there are people on on twitter you'll meet who will uh, probably take you uh, you know on in in a debate about bradman's ability on uncovered pitches which were affected by rain but i mean even after taking that into account he was absolutely prolific 
and so the entire plan of you know threatening a batsman's uh, life with such short pitch bowling on a particular line was devised to control brand and he had already succeeded in previous ashes series against england and succeeded by uh, big huge numbers and the people who you know had watched the game for a long period of time in england knew that something completely different had to be done what they came up with was perhaps not very different was perhaps an improvement and you know innovation over what was already being done in some other parts of uh, you know the cricket world but it was it completely took australia by surprise it completely took bradman by surprise there were signs that they had uh, about what's going to happen but i mean what they saw was was just completely uh, game changing so bradman is this one main character who is the one who has to be stopped and the person who's going to do the stopping is uh, harold lawood this guy is a coal miner from the nottinghamshire county in england uh has you know uh, sort of grown up the ranks in cricket uh, is is a hard working uh, very able bodied sturdy uh, you know uh, english lad uh, who can bowl very very fast and more importantly who can bowl very accurately uh, so you know we've we've seen uh, cricketers or bowlers even now do short pitch bowling right but there's only for example one neil wagner who's able to do it consistently uh, you know and get success from it so uh, and he's also at a certain pace imagine larwood uh, you know who's who's been estimated to be very very close to 100 uh, 100 mph uh, by anyone who has ever watched him uh, he was the one who was tasked with the job of the short pitch bowling uh, so that uh bradman can't score fluently can't score at all and you know england emerged victorious um he had other pace bowlers also who were partnering him but there is no body line without larwood you can't england couldn't have done it without larwood so he was so he's like the enforcer he is uh, i mean see the point about enforcer is you know it's perhaps describing a one trick pony mm-hmm. but uh, jack fingleton who was one of uh, you know uh, the leading journalist of australia back then cricket journalist and who's also a, a batsman for australia in the borderline series says on record that he thinks even if larwood have larwood would have bowled normally uh, you know and everything else remaining the same england could have won the borderline series or that ashes series so he was a complete complete fast bowler very very cool run up a uh, very smooth action uh, and you know they say about him that the front of his shirt was always dirty and you would typically assume that with fast bowlers the the thighs are dirty right because they're always right. shiny but he, the front of his shirt was dirty because he used to exert so much force through his uh, bowling action that his fingers used to graze the ground because he bent so much and he would wow. clean on the front of his shirt so he was just uh, you know one of the best fast bowlers the world has ever seen and in later years uh, ray lindwall of australia was to get inspired by him he even attended one of the bodyline series tests as a young kid so yeah. larwood is you know the second guy and larwood you have to understand is is a professional 
he was in this lower rung, which meant that for all practical purposes, he was just supposed to follow orders. And the guy who was the captain was typically an amateur. The difference was that the professionals played cricket for money and amateurs played cricket for fun. Not always a very clear divide, but that's essentially the basic definition. And the captain was an amateur who was Douglas Jardine of Surrey. Uh, this guy hated Australians. We're talking about 1932-33. And in 1921, uh, the Australians had come to England for uh, an Ashes series. And one of their matches was, uh, first class matches was against Oxford, for which Jardine was playing. And I mean, to cut a long story short, it was a three-day match, which was perhaps reduced to two days because Australia wanted another day uh, between you know, this match and the next match, which was a proper test match. And what happened was because of that one day being taken off, Jardine was left stranded on 91, the completed a century. Uh, he had gone to Australia earlier uh, to play the Ashes and he was... Uh, you know, taken apart by the crowd as he fielded on the boundary. Uh, Australian crowds were known to be, you know, very, very... Uh, the, the particular word used for them is barrackers. So they were just too, too much for the uh, visiting players at times, which perhaps continues to be the case even now. Uh, so Jardine had something about him, which was perhaps anti-Australian, perhaps anti-Bradman, and, you know, a lot has been made in all the writing about his personality and this and that. But uh, if you take out the morality from it, whether to do it was right or wrong, he was essentially tactically very, very astute because he was the one who was watching a clip of the 1930 Ashes in England where Bradman uh, had to come out to play just before the end of base play. Uh, in a particular test match at the Oval. And uh, at that time, or during that small period of play, one ball from Larwood, which sort of bounced uh, you know, to his ribs or shoulder or whatever, he was seen to be flinching against it. Huh. And they say that Jardine was the one who was watching clips of Bradman to figure out you know, what plans could be made against him. And Jardine was the one who figured this out. And there were instances after this, obviously, when the English had you know, started using the bodyline tactic. But there were instances even before this when it had happened. But Jardine was, is supposed to be the one who was controlling all of it, devising all of it, making improvements to it so that the bodyline series, uh, the bodyline tactic you know, uh, maintained its potency. And uh, what he even did was he went to this guy called Frank Foster. Frank Foster was a left-arm pacer uh, of Warwickshire who had great success in Australia in 1911-12. And how did, the, how did he have that success? He was essentially bowling uh, in duckers to right-handed batsmen from a left-arm over angle. And everything that he bowled, or almost everything that he bowled, was you know on the thighs and hips, and that was just called leg theory. And what Jardine did was he went and met Foster, and understood what Foster did because he had that success. And when Foster had that success, 
you know what were the field settings like what was the discussion like etc and jardin never revealed to him a great deal about what jardin himself had in mind for the upcoming ashes but he got all that information the other thing that he did was after the team for this ashes series was announced uh, percy fender was the captain of surrey and percy fender made sure that larwood jardin percy fender himself and another pacer of nottinghamshire same county as larwood uh, bill vos who was a left arm pacer and perhaps you know a very very able foil to larwood all of these guys met in a hotel in london called the piccadilly hotel and slowly the conversation warmed up and it was made sure that larwood and vos a right arm pacer and a left arm pacer got the clear cut message that this is what we are going to do and it is described as you know uh, perhaps a scene from andaz apna apna where they're using food items and plates and cups and saucers to describe where would the fielding positions be and where would you know uh, who would field where and what is the line going to be they're doing all of that right, on right. you know table and fielding part of it was as important as the bowling part of it because what these guys did was imagine a completely or almost a completely vacant offside to the right hander and on the leg side you have the wicketkeeper who's obviously in the center and then you have like three forward short legs then perhaps a couple of backward short legs then there is one guy at leg slip there's one guy at square leg there's one guy at backward square leg there's one guy at long leg you have made sure that the only place to which the batsman can hit a shot either defensively or offensively you have fielders there and the offside is left completely vacant it's completely up to the batsman to you know watch the ball coming over here towards his uh, left shoulder as a right-handed batsman and somehow maneuver himself into such a position that he is able to play it on the offside but you know that with the kind of speed that larwood and vos were operating at and the kind of accuracy that they had it's not going to be possible to do that so you're saying that you can essentially hit strokes only in one part of the ground and we have fielders to the brim over there and the combination of these two things such hostile accurate fast bowling uh such a clear cut fielding plan uh and you know such high profile characters such a high profile series all of this had not ever come together earlier all of these elements in isolation or couple of them would perhaps have come together but never never something like this and so uh that is why even now these names you know evoke a certain emotion uh, these central characters of jardin larwood and bradman and perhaps bill vos also who was a pretty effective foil to uh, to larwood so it, it is fascinating how much thought and planning went into this but it also makes sense in a way because we look at bradman at that time um you know we live in an era where there's all this debate about who's the best batsman you know we talk about the virat kohlis the smiths the williams and the roods but bradman seems to be at another level altogether because his batting average was i think it was hovering around 100 at that time yeah. and it necessitated a situation where they had to 
think outside the box, right? Um, to get him out. And it's, it's pretty impressive when you consider that Douglas Jardine went to these lengths because the other thing is we talk about cricket being a gentleman's game, right? And to this day, we have all these debates about the spirit of cricket. And I think that era really exemplified that because it, it was supposed to be played in the best spirit and you know everyone is nice to each other. And this seems to have just come out of the blue. And I'm, you know, obviously the Australian public and everyone who followed it were just shocked at all of this. But you know, you just talking about these characters and talking about what led to this uh, need for this kind of a strategy. It looks like so Douglas Jardine, the English captain, this was probably what months or years in the making, this this plan that all came together in 1932. Australia complete were the Australian team completely blindsided. Like I'm talking specifically about the team, the batsmen. Yeah. Uh, were they completely blindsided by this uh, targeted approach from the English? Did they have no clue at all? How 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 did they handle this? Like when when they were first confronted by it. Uh, I mean, the first thing that I'd say is you know this this whole concept of. Uh cricket being a gentleman's game and more so in an earlier time is, is something that I believed in for a long time. And as you read more and more about cricket history, you realize that, you know, uh, nothing bad is, uh, has happened for the first time. You know, you, you talk about ball tampering, for example, there was ball tampering, you know, uh, allegation, accusation, etc. in the Bodyline series as well. And you're talking 1932-33, right? So, Everything bad has been going on in cricket since time immemorial. That's <laughs> they're saying cricket was never a gentleman's game. <laughs> absolutely never was. I mean, never, absolutely never. Uh, the second bit about you know how did the Australian team receive it? Uh, I'll tell you something which is perhaps the best example of you know how 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 much it took them by surprise. When the English team was announced, they had four pace bowlers, right and if you think of a touring team now, four pace bowlers is nothing. It's it's commonplace. Right. Wasn't the case back then. So much so that Bradman expressed his worry about what's going to happen. There were people who predicted, you know, uh, foretold almost that if these fast bowlers are going to come together as they perhaps can, then the spirit of cricket, the holy spirit of cricket is perhaps going to be contravened. All of that was there, but even then, the first match in the tour in, the, in which you know, they unleashed Bodyline was the fifth match. And Australian eleven put together from various players was playing the MCC side as the English team was known back then, Melbourne Cricket Club. And the openers were a left-hander called Leo O'Brien and a right-hander called uh, Woodful, who was to also captain Australia in the series. Uh, and Leo O'Brien... Uh, you know, sees that Woodful is going to take the strike. Uh, but there are fielders behind him on the leg side. And so he tells the English folks that, you know, I am not going to take strike because the slips make sense for me, right? They're outside my off stump. So what is this field arrangement? He's going to take strike. Maybe the slip should move on the other side. And they don't say a word to him. And that is when they discover that, okay, this is what we are up against. And 
I mean, different people obviously had different reactions to it. Um, you know, the press was very, very, uh, you know, taken up, uh, you know, in arms about the entire situation. But uh, I mean, from whatever I've read, it would be fair to say that the fast bowlers were there and everyone knew that short pitch bowling was, uh, you know, a tactic that teams used and Larwood was a very, very fast bowler. Nobody really expected that, you know, they would make it such a situation and Jardine would make make it such a situation. So they were pretty, uh, pretty much taken by surprise. How did the batsmen cope with it though? The Australian batsmen, how did they fare against these tactics? So, I mean, different guys sort of worked out their different uh, methods, right? So, there's this amazing Australian batsman uh, who would have uh, been so much better known had he not been in the same era as Bradman. And there are, you know, a couple of, uh, or three actually major marquee innings that he essayed, which are well known across the world. And uh, Bradman himself watched two of them and he absolutely loved them. It's, it's a guy called Stan McCabe. And Stan McCabe was a very, very good player of the cross batted shots against fast bowling. The pull and the hook, essentially, and even more so the hook. So, the first test match that happened, by now, the Australians know that this is going to happen. The first test match that happened, Australia were in a spot of bother in the first innings of the test. Three, four wickets down, Stan McCabe comes in and he counterattacks like hell hath no tomorrow. He takes them on uh, with the leg side field being in place, with the bouncers coming to him. There are a few body blows that he receives, but he is hooking them away to glory. It was a hair-raising innings. Uh, people who watched it, you know, still talk about it in reverential tones to this day. Uh, and that counter-attack uh, and that partnership that he had with another batsman called Vic Richardson, who was Greg Chappell's uh, grandfather, that mm. was to be so good that the English may have even considered dropping the plan altogether. Till now, it had worked in the first-class matches. Uh, it had even worked against Bradman in the first-class matches. But if such a counter-attack was indeed possible, then they might as well not do it anymore. And they might as well revert to the conventional type of bowling, which wouldn't have been a great success because Australian pitches, you know, in those eras were flat and you hardly had any lateral movement, uh, you know, once the ball got even a little old and, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't going to be a pretty sight at all. So, it was that sort of a counter-attacking innings where, you know, perhaps even Jardine and Larwood questioned themselves. I mean, just, just to emphasize your point there, because I just saw this, that Stan McCabe in the first game, he scored 187 not out from 233 deliveries. That's even by yeah. today's standards, that's just an amazing knock. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. I mean, uh, and, and you know, when you're reading about that knock uh, and you're seeing, uh, you know, what kind of uh, risks he's taking, uh, you, you will not be able to say that he wasn't lucky. He was indeed lucky because, you know, a top edge going, top edge going to hand or, you know, uh, top edge even hitting him uh, on the face or something, all of those were possibilities. But the fact that he was lucky shouldn't take away from the fact that he executed those shots very, very well. And against bowling, which was so fast and so uh, you know, hostile that it was difficult to control those shots, he was able to do that and able to put Australia in a position where at least they were able to question 
the entire uh, premise on which bodyline itself was based so that was stan mckee and stan mckee perhaps lived by the sword and died by the sword he didn't do too well in the rest of the series but that one innings was you know his hallmark on the series uh, you had bradman then right uh, now bradman the best way to describe him in this entire tour was a cat on a hot pink leaf <laughs> he was premeditating everything he was moving outside the off stump or outside the leg stump so that he was away from the line of the ball he was trying to manufacture shots on the off side he was trying to do something on the leg side there are even moments when he's ducking but his bat is left up so he's scoring singles like that uh, there is an overhead uh, overhead tennis smash like shot that he hits which yields five runs uh, and he averages 56 in the series of 55 or 56 i can't remember the exact number and he did not play in the first test because of illness so 56 by any stretch of imagination is a good series right. but there are other factors to consider one is the fact that uh, 56 by bradman standards is nothing well Someone, below average <laughs> yeah yeah well below what he's used to uh, and the other thing is what are the kind of innings that he was playing all of those runs were more or less coming in boundaries like stan mckeeb's 187 all of these were high strike rate innings because he was taking risks left right and center and you don't find much written about how he is describing his batting or how he is thinking about his batting in that series but a couple of things that become clear is that he was very clear he didn't want to get injured and he also thought that this method of counter attack moving around the crease premeditating perhaps involved more risk to his life and body than what the other batsmen were doing which was only defense or defense for the most part and that's a very curious thing to say because you know it it perhaps wasn't the case if you're not going to play shots you're going to be risk at risk more but then i mean you perhaps need to have played it to to figure out which one was more dangerous but yeah i mean there are people who say that he should have played with more responsibility he should have taken a few body blows and you know stayed out there and gritted it uh, you know uh, with uh, the other batsmen but bradman did score a century in the only tests that australia won england won the series 4-1 but uh, that was again a slowish sort of wicket where uh, you could say that the ball wasn't coming on to the batsman as quickly as possible and bradman was able to average 56 throughout the series even after the kind of cricket and the kind of batting that he was doing because he still had that advantage of you know very very quick footwork and judging the length and line of the ball before anyone else etc uh but you know i if you're a fan of bradman and i mean who who can't be you're just left wanting for more when you read about you know what he was doing and uh, you want the best batsman to be able to figure out a way against any kind of bowling and in judgment one would say bradman wasn't able to or... looks like he was the impression that i get is he was rattled by not just the tactics on the field but by some of the mind games played by the uh, english as well can you talk uh, a little bit about that as well like the yeah the mind games aspect of it so again i'll i'll start off with an example there is one match in which they describe how bradman returns to the dressing room after getting out 
now you don't know whether it was his mind space at that time or whether it was you know how it actually panned out uh, or you know it just happened by dint of a mistake a silly mistake but he goes in the wrong direction uh, and doesn't go in the direction of the dressing room and so the next batsman has come in the cricket has restarted and bradman is going around the boundary to the dressing room and you don't expect bradman to do that he was one of those guys who came into the uh, ground with a smile on his face like you know he's going to own this place so maybe you know what you're saying is true he was rattled and one explanation of this was also seen in in an earlier tour uh, the 1930 31 tour of uh, 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 by south africa to australia where uh, at the fag end of a long long innings i think 290 something Uh, there was a south african pace bowler who had troubled him with a few short ones so uh, maybe he was rattled and bradman was very particular about the uh, sorry jardy was very particular about the fact that larwood had to be you know used in those short sharp spells so that he was ready to attack bradman as soon as he came in and there is a particular test match in which larwood is injured he has just bowled too much his body can't take it anymore and he's almost dying to go back to the dressing room and put his feet up his injured feet up uh and bradman uh, jardin orders larwood to stay out till bradman is out there because he by that time fervently believes that you know jardin uh, larwood is having that kind of psychological impact on bradman and uh, i think this is the last test and it perhaps there's a very poignant moment there where Jard, uh, larwood uh, is going back to the dressing room because of his injury and accompanying him is bradman who has just been dismissed and larwood has been allowed to leave the ground by jardin only because bradman has been dismissed so uh, i mean it's it's very difficult to say you know uh, what was his mind space back then but i mean there were things where you know he was he was hitting Uh, a cut shot of a ball originally outside his leg stump and uh, there was this uh, other former opening batsman of uh, england called jack hobbs who was again a major run scorer who was covering this series for the media and he goes on to say that if a schoolboy hit a shot like that you would whack that schoolboy on the head and here was bradman doing it and interestingly uh, a very sedate version of body line was bowled by one of uh, you know the the english bowlers in this series body line series to uh, hobbs earlier in in county cricket and hobbs was completely up in arms against it so you know it's it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of bradman to be able to understand what he was going through but I, I, again i mean it would be fair to say that his mind space was was not at his best and the the enormous press coverage that this series received uh, you know and the documentation of his inability to counter body line perhaps may have played its part too so that's that's what i think about uh, you know those those mind games the fascinating thing is you know when the first two tests were done both sides had won one game apiece and you said you mentioned bradman missed the first game uh, when he returned for the second test he got out first ball in the first innings but then he scored a century in the second innings so the general consensus from what i read is that you know critics thought you know this body line tactics is not really quite the threat that they expected and that bradman is fine he had a hiccup in the first innings um and it, everything is okay 
Now, the third test, that's when it really seemed to heat up, right? Yeah. Can, can you talk to us about, you know, just what happens so there? The third test is Adelaide, right? And uh, I, I mean, at least in that test, uh, Adelaide has, has a bouncier pitch, has a, has a pitch which is definitely going to aid body line. And uh, I mean, just to get to the point of it, Woodful is the Australian captain who is hit above the heart by a very, very fast short ball from Narwood. And I mean, while I'm not surely aware of the technical details, but given the heartbeat that he was having at that time, uh, if it would have hit him on that the place where it hit him, a moment later or a moment earlier, he would have died on the spot. That's what you know, medical experts came to say later. And then there is the Australian wicketkeeper, uh, Bert Oldfield, who is uh, you know, uh, actually batting well. He's, he's uh, coping up against the short uh, pitch bowling quite well. Uh, and, you know, Larwood and him are even exchanging friendly comments. And suddenly there is a short ball, which is actually not short enough to be called borderline and old field goes goes for an uh, goes for a slightly attacking stroke and the ball catches the top edge and hits him on the temple and he stutters around and there's blood uh, that's all over the place and uh, all the other batsmen get hit um, i mean the other batsmen the tactic was more or less you know that you either let the ball hit you or just you know glance it away onto the ground etc everyone was getting hit and these two blows woodful and oldfield were the ones that really brought home the impact and the possible danger of body line the crowd uh, got really uh, you know charged up and uh, there was a great deal of uh, commotion that the police had to handle and uh, it was one of you know those test matches which was like uh, you know you you could throw a matchbox in there and everything would have uh, you know burnt up and uh, tempers were obviously flying around and uh, i mean even now when you read about that test match uh, and you read the impact those hits had on the cricketers and on uh, the crowd you you just get a sense of you know something very very major and something very wrong that's happening. Uh, the other thing that happened in the Adelaide test was after Woodfull received that fearful blow over his heart, uh, at the end of day's play, the England manager, who was a former English captain, uh, came to the Australian dressing room and just wanted to express sympathy with the Australian captain, uh, who was hit above the heart. And uh, Woodfull you know, utters that very, very famous line, which Anil Kumble used many years later. He says that, Mr. Warner, I don't want to talk to you. And there are two teams out there. One is playing cricket and the other is not. Or something, you know, one is playing in the spirit of cricket and the other is not. And this line took a life of its own. It was right. all over the newspapers the next day and it continues to be used till this day. But the fact of the matter is, in those days at least, perhaps dressing room sanctity meant something. And this line and this discussion was never supposed to go out of the sanctum sanctorum of the dressing room. Uh, 
and this controversy by itself took a life of its own which was who leaked this to the press and it went on for so many years till the 90s uh, you know uh, warner the manager of the english team thought that uh, fingleton had done it because fingleton was a press guy um, and fingleton took out a book called cricket crisis in which he blamed bradman for it then there were a couple of major journalists who uh you know had uh written their manuscripts and typescripts which were to be released only at the time of their death and again it went on you know bradman or someone else or you know fingleton essentially the point is that every single thing that happened in that in that test match uh you know was so major and so inflated that uh it really was one of those games which you know do not happen very often in the history of cricket and of course england won the test and won it uh, quite well uh, but the result almost seems secondary given you know whatever whatever happened uh, in just those couple of moments in the test you know this reading about the third test it, it is fascinating one of the s- smaller interesting things apart from all of the body line and all the controversies is that those were the days when there used to be breaks um yeah. you know it was five day game but there used to be like a break day like for example sunday was a rest day so they played yeah. saturday took a break on sunday resumed the test match on monday um yeah. that is fascinating and uh, so third test it is intense it is crazy you can see all the emotions not just from the australian players the australian team but even from the players there is this thing uh, i think there was uh, bert oldfield when he was injured Yeah. Uh, he attempted to hook and he etched the ball onto his temple and the ball fractured his skull he yeah. kind of staggered away and fell to his knees and so you you can see the the crowd they're jeering they're shouting and it's said that several english players thought about arming themselves with stumps should yeah. the crowd come onto the field so this is the kind of environment this is the atmosphere yeah. did the australian players ever think of retaliating on the field like themselves targeting the english uh, again i mean you know one of these matches uh, perhaps a first class match or a test match where there is some mention of the fact that the only way the australians could retaliate was uh, hitting the batsmen with their throws when they were returning you know the ball to the wicket keepers fielders so it was that desperate a situation now uh, what we have to look at is the relative strength of the two bowling uh, sides or the two bowling teams so to speak here on the english side you have larwood and bose whom we have already spoken about we have uh, gabby allen who is again an amateur who does not bowl body line and is free to not bowl body line because he is an amateur doesn't need to listen to jardin all the time but he's a very very good bowler goes on to become an english captain later uh and you have uh, bill bose of uh, yorkshire who's not let's say uh, the fastest of the lot or the most accurate of the lot but he's completing the quadrant right on the english side on the australian side on the other hand uh the brisbane test uh, you know they actually entered the test with three frontline bowlers and their fast bowling stocks were very very depleted at that time you had a guy called nagel you had alexander you had wall 
wall was perhaps the best of all of them uh, in terms of you know pace and direction and accuracy but he was also nothing absolutely nothing in comparison to how good uh, you know larwood and vos were and if you wanted to retaliate you didn't have the arsenal and you didn't have the ammunition to retaliate however it must be said that woodfull perhaps had the opportunity to at least try retaliation but he was someone who believed in the goodness of cricket and you know everything else and he never wanted to try it he wanted himself and his team to completely stay away from it uh one of the people in the australian team was vic richardson whom we have described earlier in the context of the first test and his partnership with mccap he was someone who fought fire with fire uh and you know chapelli has taken on uh, many of those qualities himself but victor richardson at that time was the captain of south australia and i think in one of the last tour matches he actually tried giving the australians a taste of bodyline uh you know and he had this guy called alexander uh, at his disposal but again i mean none of it really turned out to be good enough uh you know to trouble the australian the english batsman for sustained duration uh there were a couple of hits that they sustained but then bilvos actually when he bowled to the south australian batsman he showed how it is done he ended up even injuring one of the south australian pace bowlers who was trying to do body line so uh, i mean it all goes to show that it's it's very nice to say that you know okay if you're going to do body line i'm going to do body line as well then let's see you know who wins it's going to be very very difficult to find the right pace bowlers to be able to execute it over a sustained period of time and you're talking about first class matches you're talking about test matches you're talking about the heat and the dust and grime of australia and the flies of australia um, many of uh, i mean the trend in those days was a timeless test so you know you had to really put in a lot of overs and so while you can comment on the morality of it you cannot take away from the fact that the skill involved in executing it and the passion and the uh, you know perseverance and the temperament involved in executing it was absolutely top notch so australia never really had a real chance at retaliation so you know at the end of the series the 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 scoreline says 4-1 to england and you know the fourth and the fifth test it said that in the fourth test only larwood continued to use body line um he was the only bowler to try the tactic and the fifth test um despite all the talk about body line and all of that australia scored 435 at a rapid pace in the first innings uh the spinners were actually more successful in that game so looking at the series overall do you think the body line tactics the short pitch strategy did that really have anything to do with the actual result of the series or was that just what dominated the headlines uh, no i think there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that you know uh, body line had a lot to do with uh, with how the series panned out because you don't have to look too far essentially you just have to look at how bradman was getting out that's it bradman was getting out uh, with his leg stump uh, you know gone because he was too far on the offside trying to manufacture a random shot or you know he 
was trying to manufacture a cut shot, but the ball was too full and he was getting bold or LPW or, you know, if you were able to stop Bradman, you were able to stop Australia. And yes, in the last test, Australia ended up scoring more than 400, but you have to realize one important element. One of the top scorers was, uh, was a guy called Darling who didn't play a lot for Australia, but he was perhaps one of their bravest batsmen, even joked around that, you know, perhaps in a very sexist way that even his sister could handle body line. He batted really well. And there were a couple of others who batted really well. But this guy was a left hand. And as we discussed earlier, body line in some way, I mean, you could question as to why it couldn't be done for left-handers too, left-handed batsmen too. But they had restricted the application of the entire body line tactic to right-handed batsmen only. And you also have to consider that, you know, Larwood was tiring by that time and, uh, you know, they were dropping catches left, right and center. Uh, the, the English fielding had been really good throughout the series. But if you read more about the last test in particular, they were just pathetic at, you know, taking any sort of catches at all. So, uh, the scoreline may suggest that Australia was perhaps batting better as, you know, the series progressed. Uh, but body line uh, definitely, definitely was continuing to have an impact, if not in you know the sense of uh, the actual bowling being faced, the psychological impact that it had created was, I mean, to my mind, undeniable. And perhaps that continued for a long period of time. So let's talk about the immediate impression in the cricket world, right? So all of this body line and tactics, okay, this is confined to the two teams. But what was the general feeling in the cricket world at that time? See, first of all, we're talking about 32-33, which meant that, you know, there was no live broadcast of, of cricket around the world as it happens today. Uh, uh, just to give you an example of what the Englishmen, uh, you know, or the English general fans of cricket were receiving as news about body line. So uh, BBC was doing some you know, bland 10-minute summary and people wanted more. And so there was a radio channel in Paris who sort of stepped into the breach. They hired an ex-Australian player uh, called Alan Fairfax to do, I think, one or two hour summaries of the day's play uh, at around... 6, 7 a.m., which was when the day's play was ending in Australia. So he had received all cables and reports during the day and he, he was sort of not presenting a summary, but he was actually presenting some sort of a synthetic commentary is what they called it, of the entire day's play. And people obviously lapped it up. What they didn't realize was that whatever information came to him was in itself heavily redacted. And which meant that the British people never really got to know what was happening. They were thinking, oh, Larwood is a fantastic bowler and, you know, Australians are also uh, very good players, but our team is winning and, you know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, obviously, I mean, there were people who were getting to know about what was happening, but for the general public to a large uh, extent, you know, this was like any other Ashes series. Uh, once the word spread about it, you know, obviously other <clears throat> countries were not really powerful in the cricketing world at that time. And so perhaps they didn't have much to say. Uh, but I mean, 
just the fact that you had to see body line to be able to capture for yourself the full extent of it that was not happening what was the impression outside of australia and england like uh in other countries did that have any kind of impact did other teams think oh this could be a strategy we could use against bradman uh not really i mean uh, because you know you had to have the kind of pace and uh, the kind of hostility that uh, that that uh, england in that that uh, series possessed uh there were a couple of other interesting incidents that happened with bradman himself uh and those happened in domestic matches uh, one of those involved uh, you know uh, this uh, leg spinner called clary grimme who was a new zealand born uh, slow bowler for australia who did very very well uh now i think this is the 1936 season if i'm not wrong south australia is playing victoria and by that time bradman had shifted from new south wales to uh, south australia uh and he's obviously captaining them and there's this very very fast bowler in victoria called mccormick who is bouncing bradman but bradman is able to you know do okay against him and finally gets the better of him and scores really quickly same sort of strike rate um and you know he actually ends up getting out to an attacking shot very very uh, just a few minutes before the end of day's play <clears throat> and at that time his team south australia is still behind victoria's first innings total so logic would dictate that you know if your team is still behind play within yourself at least a little bit so that you know you're able to take away the lead of the opposition team and then you go full hog uh so when he returned to the dressing room claring grime who was his teammate at south australia told him that you know maybe you would trying to almost get out because you didn't want to face mccormick again the next day and he had a new ball and you know again you don't know what bradman said back to him at that time what we do know is that grime never ended up playing for australia anymore and the reason given was you know he was 44 or whatever but uh you can't deny that this is a possibility that clary grime never played for australia just because he told bradman that listen maybe you actually are afraid of short pitch bowling uh, there was this this uh, second last first class match that bradman played which is you know a, a sort of a testimonial match for a couple of players who were retiring uh, australian ranks and by that time bradman had already retired from international cricket he had played that famous uh, you know zero innings which left him with an average just below 100 and this was supposed to be a lighter game in that sense and keith miller was you know bowling to him and keith miller thought uh, let me have some fun by you know bouncing bradman he bounces him once goes for a six very clean hook bounces him again and this one could have taken bradman's head with it and bounces him a third time and bradman spoons off an easy catch you know to one of the closing fielders and what is the result of this or at least what happens after this uh, is that there is a team that is going to be picked up for the south africa tour and who doesn't find his name in the tour <laughs> keith miller so you know bradman 
for all his batting greatness was not an easy character to understand he had his moments of genius but perhaps all genius is also blighted by uh, you know this this aloofness and this ability to not connect to people and you know fingleton perhaps seems to be obsessed against him uh, you know in all the books that he has written but i mean with these incidents you can perhaps see that even you know after removing the exaggeration in what fingleton is saying there is perhaps truth to you know how he describes uh, bradman and there is also the catholic versus protestant divide in the australian team bradman was protestant and um, fingleton and a host of others were uh, you know catholic and uh, fingleton even carried his rosary beads in his pocket when he went out to bat and there's this one incident where a very very fast ball from larwood strikes him on the hip and ends up crushing the rosary beads so you know while this body line tactic was being used against them maybe if bradman would have batted differently maybe if luck would have favored mccabber a little more maybe if you know the the team was really clear about you know what they had to do to be able to you know do something about this onslaught against them maybe things could have been different but you know as it turned out uh, jardin really had uh, you know the last laugh so there are so many fascinating things that we've already talked about you know what 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 happened but as a cricket fan or a fan of cricket history what is the narrative about body line that based on your research that you wish was different or you hope or you wish that you know people knew better about it one of the things that i really really want to almost change but if not change but definitely want people to know better is harold lawood this linchpin of the english attack was also a pretty decent batsman and there is a test match in which he goes on goes in as a night watchman and he ends up scoring 98 runs uh, and it's it's an amazing story so essentially he has just finished uh, you know the australian innings and i mean the australian innings has finished and he has bowled a lot of overs and uh, with two wickets falling you know in the last session someone else is supposed to go in for the english but there is someone else who convinces jardin that you know no 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 we should send in larwood larwood is so incensed you know at all of this that i have just bowled my heart out and i have done whatever i could and we are in the fourth or fifth or whatever test match and you know that i am tiring and i'm hurt and this and that and you're still asking me to go bat as a night watchman when there are so many other guinea pigs sitting here who probably don't contribute uh, as much to the team as i do i mean not perhaps his ex- exact emotions as he verbalized but somewhere you know close to the truth so when he goes out to bat he tells the next batsman that keep yourself ready because i am going to come back in very very soon and he goes in and i think on the first ball he tries a suicidal single there is no run and the other batsman is not even responding to his call and who's fielding the ball it's his old friend bradman and what does bradman do he tries to run him out and what happens misses doesn't hit the stumps it misses goes for four overs and that's <laughs> how larwood's 98 uh, you know begins and he goes back to the dressing room on that day comes back the next morning and he's facing short pitch bowling well obviously without the leg trap um, and he's facing the spinners well he's hitting them for boundaries 
And all this time, you get a sense that he had nothing to lose, right? Nobody was expecting a night watchman to do anything else but just be you know, not out at the end of the last day's play. Suddenly, when he came into the 90s, something perhaps came onto him and he spooned off an easy catch to somewhere, you know, some fielder close by uh, at 98. And when he goes back, you know, I, and this is the last test, the crowd gives him a rousing, rousing ovation and a great uh, response. And you don't know whether he had won them over or whether his batting was entertaining on that day, but it was some sense of, you know, life or cricket at least coming full circle for him in that span of the series itself. And I would just That's, want... That is, that is nice to see, you know, amidst all of the tension, the yeah. hostilities that you know, the main proponent of the tactic, you know, receiving those cheers for that knock, you know, it's almost like hashtag knowledgeable Australian crowd. Uh, yeah, it's, exactly. It's a nice feeling. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so the the whole narrative of bodyline has been restricted to, you know, the balls that hit Oldfield and Woodful and Bradman's batting and some of these other things that McCabe's 187, Larwood's 98, all of these do not deserve the kind of publicity that you know they should or the they should at least be hyped way, way more. Right. And the other such sort of nugget is uh, this guy called Eddie Painter, who was in the English team. Uh, and Eddie Painter, uh, I was talking to this uh, very prolific Twitter user called uh, Raja, Arj Raja, the other day, and I was talking to him about the Borderline series, and he mentions how Painter was lucky to be in the English team because, uh, you know, his, his FC record wasn't great. And he was doing okay, putting together a few partnerships, batting lower down the order. He was a left-handed batsman. Uh, and then uh, we're talking about the fourth test, uh, GABA, uh, which is, you know, where... Uh, Australian wicketkeepers call call English uh, sorry Indian spinners supposed to be you know ten or whatever. Uh, it's very very hard. Uh, you know it's one of those torturous conditions to play Test cricket. And while fielding on the first day, Painter discovers that he's not feeling well. Goes to the dressing room. From there, he goes to the hospital. Discovers that he has a fever of hundred plus, and he has tonsillitis. And uh, you know, the Australians are batting and then the English bat and the English are 264 for eight, I guess. And they are some 70, 80 runs behind. So, you know, for all their bravado, they are in danger of, you know, uh, being on the back foot in this test by a significant margin. And suddenly Painter comes out to bat. Painter has escaped from the hospital in his hospital gown. Uh, and people in the English dressing room are just amazed to see him. And he somehow goes out to bat, uh, you know, takes certain inebriation uh, and perhaps some bit of food and he goes out to bat. He does well on that day. Uh, the play ends, uh, stumps are called and goes out to bat again the, uh, the next day, puts on a decent partnership from Australia, uh, England being in a position of, uh, you know, uh, trailing by 70, 80 runs, he puts them in the position of a lead and then goes back to the hospital uh, after fielding for some time in the Australian third innings because he just can't take it. And that innings is 
one of those innings that you know uh, really describes how the other english players also uh, you know were were contributors to the cause they may not have been as big as larwood in the narrative but they did pretty well and even someone like painter who was almost lucky to be there did pretty well and hit the winning six in this test and uh, you know uh, there's uh, jardin actually goes to meet him in the hospital on the rest day and jardin tries to rouse him up by saying that you know there were english soldiers who fought uh, you know against much tougher circumstances much tougher enemies in the two anglo afghan wars and that's perhaps a nice connection to bombay the city where i live in because there is i mean my favorite place or one of my favorite places in the city is the afghan church which is one of the things that it commemorates is all the british soldiers who lost their lives in uh, you know the anglo afghan war so eddie painter's innings and you know whatever he was able to do in that fever situation with tonsillitis is is again one of those stories that i would really want more people to know and i mean the full series is full of so many so many small incidents uh, bowlers running onto the pitch and uh, you know uh, ball tampering i mentioned earlier um, clashes between captains and umpires and uh, the mcc flag getting lost so many small incidents that you know even while reading it you're like man when can i catch a break the action just just doesn't seem to you know toned down at all so it's it's right it's one of those uh, series where so much more is there than you know the popular narrative can you talk a bit about the football match with the jewish club yeah so this was you know uh, one of those fascinating things so a lot of uh, people uh, in the media these days uh, give a lot of grief to cricketers when they you know warm up with football and perhaps it would be good for them to reflect on history when the last thing or the last thing that uh, sporting activity that the english team did before leaving australian shores and they had a tour of new zealand next up was not actually cricket it was football somehow from somewhere i mean i don't know a great deal about this but the english team was pitted to play against a jewish uh, football club uh, called okau or something i'm not sure of the pronunciation and obviously the football team which played football won uh, but i think eddie painter ended up scoring one of the goals and the newspaper report says that you know they were in small sized boots and small sized kits and it was funny <laughs> sight and even then guys like bolly hemen and a few others you know distinguished themselves with how they did and I, again i mean it speaks to me about the the era in which this was done because if something like this would happen in today's times there would be so much controversy and so much social media outrage that you know the the opposition team which has come with such a demonic tactic would be banished from the country which is playing the host but these guys are ending the tour with a friendly football match and you right. know they're, they are being praised for it and they are playing in funny kits and so it's it's just you know one of those really uh, random things that happened which uh, really caught my attention and, and one of the things which we don't really think of when we you know when we read body line or hear body line 
you don't think about these kind of smaller incidents. What you hear about or what you remember is, for instance, uh, for me as, as a fan who, who has heard about Bodyline over the years, one of the big things I remember about it is how it led to the relations between England and Australia deteriorating and how there was a threat of maybe the series being canceled midway. Uh, can you give some context, especially with, we have another Ashes series coming up in a couple of weeks and already there are some scandals on both sides. Uh, we won't get into that right now, but this series, this contest between Australia and England always brings out you know, some sort of historical slash just, just either the best or the worst on both sides. Uh, but purely from a historical context, what is it, what is it about Australia and England? What is it about this rivalry? Uh, and especially in the context of the Bodyline series, uh, why was this such a flashpoint for them? So, I mean, the first thing that we have to realize is that Australia was essentially under British rule for a long, long period of time. And, you know, I mean, Australians learned their cricket or, you know, whatever. I mean, they were definitely second to England in the aspect of learning their cricket. And so it was almost, you know, always the fact that English should logically dominate. And the English team, the MCC team always, you know, came with this big brotherly approach. These days we have press conferences as soon as, you know, a visiting team lands uh, for a test series or whatever. On those days, since the players came by ship, you had a, some sort of a press conference on the deck of the ship while the ship was sort of getting into the country. And uh, you listen to any of the team managers or captains and they were making such speeches that, you know, uh, we have come to uphold the spirit of cricket and, you know, uh, it's not cricket is almost a phrase that can be used for anything that is not uh, holy or pious or pure. And, you know, we have come to spread great love and affection through this game. And they were always taking this big brotherly approach, right? And so when they came down or they were seen to be coming down, uh, you know, Australia was perhaps, you know, caught in the crossfire. They didn't know what to do and, you know, almost like deer in the flashing headlights. And with, after a lot of discussion, we won't get into the details of that, Australian cricket board decided that it would send a cable to the English counterparts saying that, you know, boss, please do something about this. Your bowlers and your captain are just completely out of line. And we think it's unsportsmanlike and spirit of cricket and all of these heavy terms were used. And the English board, again, took the approach where it was just like, you know, swatting off a fly and saying that, <laughs> boss, if you don't want our guys to play, continue to play, tell us but we think that they're doing just fine. And maybe they consulted uh, Larwood and, or not Larwood, but Jardine and Warner, the, the England team manager about it. But uh, I mean, after the exchange of those cables and so many power brokers involved and politicians involved and, you know, everything happening, it, the series went on because ultimately the money that it generated the number of people who came into the ground and the attention it you know gave to cricket was unprecedented uh, you know rahul bhattacharya in his book about uh, the indian tour to pakistan in 3 4 after a long time india had gone to pakistan writes about 
how the media contingent was huge ginormous and obviously the numbers won't be the same but you have to just scale it back and see how big it was in 33 34 the interest was just another level altogether and so both boards decided uh, i mean through explicit conversation or implicitly they knew that it was in the best interest to continue this uh, series but i mean after even after this series had ended and you know further test matches were played between the two countries the sort of body line sort of never went away it was almost always there and whenever a very very fast bowler came onto the scene either for england or australia you can even go up to the 36 37 ashes or the 48 ashes it was always you know spoken about in context or in relation to the body line series so looking back now i think given the positions that the two boards are in today in icc and in general in the sporting world or the cricket world they are very very powerful they work with each other quite well they are always keen to play each other because the ashes series continues to be a money spinner uh, so i wouldn't say that beyond a few years which is nothing in such a long history the relations were severely strained but yeah in those few years you really had the two boards you know not being able to look each other in the eye and uh, it was it was definitely a a flashpoint for a limited period of time from a cricketing perspective were there any changes to the laws of the game obviously i mean uh, you had changes which came about uh, which came about in terms of how many people could uh, field behind you know the square line on the leg side and you had the decision on short pitch bowling itself changing over a period of time uh, you couldn't bowl it to tailenders and then you were limited to a certain number and all of those things were happening but it didn't happen before you know the same kind of bowling did rear its ugly head a couple of times more and uh, i'll perhaps talk about two of them one was the england west indies series that happened in england in 33 jardin was again the captain and uh, this sort of again finds a parallel to ashes 2005 so essentially what happened was uh, there was this amazing all rounder the andre russell of that era uh, you know almost colliery constantine who was already in england because he was playing in something called the lancashire league club cricket essentially uh, and because his club did not want to release him for west indies he didn't play in the first test and obviously england being as powerful as it was back then they won quite easily i think by innings and some runs and then in the next test somehow his club released him and so he came into the team and he and a couple of other bowlers really unleashed body line against the english batsmen uh one of their greatest ever uh, him and bolly hemond had a split chin several other people got hurt and this was the first time that the english crowd was really seeing what body line could be in a proper test match it was happening in first class matches earlier also that's where larwood and bose had learned it under the leadership of uh, a guy called uh, arthur car this was the first time when on a test match uh, pedestal you were seeing this happening live 
And so this test match is somehow drawn in which West Indies unleash bodyline. And uh, even for the third test, Leary Constantine is available for the West Indies. And his club actually ends up taking another English player who is not in the team at all, nowhere near the team. They end up taking him as a replacement for whatever matches they are playing. And who gets wind of this? Jardine. And so what does Jardine do? He includes that replacement guy in Constantine's club in the English team itself, which means that Constantine's club is without the replacement player and they call Constantine back. And so Constantine, who was the main guy or the main threat from the West Indies side for the English is no longer in the team. And I mean, what happens in Ashes 2005 is Gary Pratt obviously runs out Ricky Ponting. And then they say that Ricky Ponting gets in touch with the Durham captain, who's none other than his good mate, uh, Michael Hussey at that time. And Michael Hussey calls Pratt to the Durham team. Uh, you know, can't release him to the English team any longer as just a substitute. Doesn't give him a match. So it's it's amazing how you know Bodyline and the stories along with it continued. Uh, India also saw its share of Bodyline. This was 33-34, Jardine again captain, coming back to the birthplace or the country of his birth. Larwood and Bose are already gone by then. Their careers didn't end up uh, in or didn't end greatly because they were essentially ostracized by their counties and by the cricket board, the English cricket board. But you have two other guys here, both of whom are, you know, perhaps people on the edge. And you have stories of uh, this guy called Dilawar Hussain, who actually gets retired her twice in the same test, still ends up scoring a 50 in each innings. Uh, one of them is a crack on his head, and he comes back after retired after being retired hurt with a bandage around his head with the wound still bulging out. Another one is where his knuckles or something gets cracked, wrist gets cracked. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are uh, incidents of even guys like Vijay Merchant getting hit. Uh, and obviously, I mean, England was so powerful at that time that there was no question of the fact that, you know, they were going to win. But the fact that they decided to unleash Bodyline and in the Chennai Test Match, the Madras Test Match as it was called back then, the Indian or the knowledgeable Chennai crowd, as they say, actually shouted Bodyline. And <laughs> at that time, the word had you know spread to all parts of the world. And so, I mean, it was just one of those, uh, one of those uh, things that perhaps continued till the time Jardine was there. And Jardine knew um, you know, under his Harlequin cap that it was going to end someday. It wasn't going to continue forever. But I think uh, he made sure that by the, you know, for whatever time he was involved in cricket, he extracted every ounce out of his tactic and retired on his own terms, refused to go to... The Basically, game. before the laws of the game would change, he was going to make full use of it. Yeah. 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 Almost yes. makes me think of Ashwin and the whole the run out at the non-striker side but that again yeah. that's that's a topic for another day <laughs> i have yeah. to say i'm really fascinated by douglas jardine from our yeah. conversation because he yeah. seems like one of the most interesting players to have you know played uh, in international cricket now you know I, I mentioned at the start of this episode that we 
the very fact that we still talk about this series all these decades later, uh, it's because of how it's been imprinted in our minds. And a lot of it is due to depiction in popular culture, like you mentioned, the TV series, and there are books too. What are some of the books or accounts that has been, um, what has come out of this series? Okay, the number of books that has that have been written on this series is not funny. Almost every single guy on the English side ended up coming out with a book which covered only this series or uh, you know uh, the entire career uh, with this series being one of the focus points. Uh, Warner wrote a book, was the English manager. Jardine wrote a book. Larwood uh, came out with something. Uh, Verity came out with something. Uh, I mean, the number of people who have written about this is is just ginormous. And uh, but I think it's important to realize that uh, you know what sources are you going to trust as as you know the defining ones and what where is bias going to creep in. So uh, I mean, David Fritz's book Bodyline Autopsy has already become one of my favorite books. Is perhaps one of the best ones and very very comprehensive. Uh, Fingleton has written a nice one. It's perhaps one of the few books on the Australian side of the Australian team. Uh, although they wrote uh, about Bodyline through them, I mean through ghostwriters of themselves, but Fingleton perhaps captures it in the best way possible. And him. Uh, you know, having been one of the batsmen, suffered at uh, the hands of Larwood and Bodyline, um, scored a pair in the first test and was dropped later. So he really knows what it was like and you know, he, he writes about it well. So I, I would tend to say that those two are the best ones in terms of not just what happened, but also analysis and getting to know what players felt. Uh, Martin Williamson, who was... Uh, Know, one of the senior guys in ES, uh, ESPN Cricket Info back in the day, he has done a fabulous job of putting together almost a day-by-day timeline of the Bodyline series, which is still accessible to anyone. Um, and as I said, once you read that too, you just get the feeling that you can't catch a break. Even between test matches and even between first-class matches, there is some news that is coming in, which is just taking uh, you know the series by storm. So, I would say those um, three would be the best sources. And then there are lots and lots of guys on Twitter who are perhaps interested in old cricket. There is uh, Arj Raja, who I spoke about. Uh, there is uh, Ravman, Vijayaramugam is there. Uh, Sriram is obviously there. Lots and lots of folks who you know, keep bringing it up in one conversation or the other and keep having debates on some of the finer points of, uh, of this series as a whole. So Abhishek, tell tell me about the poem that you mentioned earlier. So essentially, uh, you know, this is what I wanted to, uh, you know, put, you know, keep the good stuff for the last, as they say. So I wanted to tell you about a poem that uh, I'm found in one of Fingleton's books, which just, you know, I completely loved it the first time I read it, and this is uh, something that he got from the South African team, which had told the toured Australia just before Bodyline series. And uh, they, in uh, turn, credited to someone from Essex called Newman. And uh, I, I'm going to read it out now. It's essentially a song, but I obviously can't sing to save my life. So it says, 
if your bat wants to score well let it if a four you can get well get it don't be too slow just have a go all the folks will hear about it and the crowd will grow if a duck is your luck never mind someone else will get too you'll find so just have a go and forget it and if your bat wants to score well let it <laughs> well i would have loved to hear it as a song but <laughs> some very good lyrics in there um and i can't think of a yeah. better way to end this episode actually i i would say that uh i would love based on everything that you have shared today based on all that we have discussed i would really love to see a properly produced television series or a movie about yeah. this because yeah. i think cricket fans today and not just cricket fans i think just history buffs uh are missing out on one of the most remarkable series or remarkable events in the history of australian and english sport uh yeah. at that time so i really hope um if anyone is listening by chance if you are a aspiring filmmaker have a go at it i think you'll find yeah. a lot of people interested so abhishek thank yeah. you so much i i absolutely enjoyed this it's a uh, fascinating um incident in time i wouldn't say incident a collection of incidents uh but just yeah. you know history you know cricket history a fascinating piece of cricket history that i really hope a lot of people who listen to this um you know just learned a lot more about it than what they already knew so thank you for you know all of that information and all the research and work you put into this so i really appreciate it no i mean uh, it was fantastic to come on board and uh, it's something that as i said at the beginning has always fascinated me and um, thank you for the opportunity to be able to come here and uh, you know share the most interesting stuff that i found uh, with you it's perhaps easier to talk about the cricket since it's i mean the scorecards are there and right but some somehow all of these stories on the side uh which perhaps make up for the context uh you know are almost as interesting as the cricket itself that is right so i really hope that you will come back on our show again and maybe we'll talk about another fascinating uh series you know that happened probably in india uh so i hope yeah. that you will come back and uh we can talk some more cricket history absolutely thank you so much Well there you have it. Thanks again to Abhishek for dropping in and shedding some light on one of the most epic test duels of all time. For more fascinating historical tidbits, be sure to give him a follow on Twitter. Link to his Twitter bio can be found in our show notes and you can also check out our website thelastwicket.com for more information about the Bodyline series. As we sign off, just a quick note that the Last Wicket will be taking an indefinite break. I want to take this moment to say a huge thank you to our loyal band of listeners. We appreciate all the kind words you have said about the show, and I promise that we'll continue to bring you content of the highest quality. Thanks again for all your support, and do let others know you enjoy this podcast and why they should listen too. Till next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy the holidays. <laughs>